0: And welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Psych Monologues. I'm glad to have you. Uh, I am Dr. Ray Mitch, your host, been the host the entire time, um, and uh, we're, we're, we're glad to enter into February. I, I jokingly say we have just left the longest month of the year and moved into the shortest one is certainly the way we it feels that way. So uh, we are heading into, or actually we're landing, the last of a series. And we'll get into that in a second, uh, just to give you some idea of what it is that you've tuned into. Maybe you've gotten bribed into coming into this thing. I certainly hope that that, uh, um, what I have to say and the things that we talk about would be relevant to you. So the Psycho Monologues, it's a podcast that actually talks about, looks at what I call the intersection of faith, psychology, and spiritual formation. And for a lot of people of faith, they see psychology as antagonistic to their faith. And yet I think it has a lot to offer us in terms of the realities of how we function and the things that we do and the, the back story, if you will, of the things that we experience. So that being said, we're going to talk about that in light of how we how we participate in our faith, the journey of faith that we've been on, and we're going to look at those things. So the psych monologs is actually the the beginning point of the mission to talk about such things. And then it has grown into a bigger organization called Stained Glass International. Um, And SGI, as I call it, its mission is to equip, encourage, and and, um, empower the next generation of Christians to live an authentic, uh, uh, live authentically. Sorry about that. To live authentically in relationship to Jesus, others, and themselves, and ultimately, our ultimate overriding goal is to develop uh, what I call outposts for the heart and communities for the soul. Someplace, someplace safe. And place can be a location. It can be. You know, a conversation, it can be a lot of different things where it's safe to take our armor off, it's safe to take our masks off and to be known as we are. Now, that can be extremely threatening. I understand that. I think everybody feels that way because we feel like our vulnerability is a, an invitation to be taken advantage of or it's a weakness rather than out of that vulnerability our connection with one another grows into our connection with our god and and with jesus himself so pull up a chair get comfortable relax get something to to drink to sip on if you're in the car and you're listening to this don't take your eyes off the road or hands off the wheel Uh, i could reverse those and i don't know how that would work Um, but hopefully we'll talk about the things about where you live how you think, what you're feeling about living this life this way, uh, and the things that are that really are important. And where we have left off is uh, episode 20, 122 and 123, we left off talking about forgiveness and repentance. And forgiveness, I looked at and spent some time talking about. And some of the distortions we actually carry with us about that in terms of forgiveness, and and we looked at what's the difference between genuine and superficial forgiveness and then also the idea that that forgiveness is is gotten confused and people think that it's a decision only and then if i make that decision then i will live a different life or we i'll feel differently about the person i'm forgiving or whatever that might be and and there's a process that has to be undertaken as well. So not only do I need to, to make the decision to do that, but I need to undertake some kind of process to releasing the other person, and the way that I define it shorthand, is releasing the other person of my demand that they change, okay? And so that's, that's the forgiveness piece. That was that summary of, of episode 122. And then last week I talked about repentance and repentance is not a word we use a lot of. Quite honestly I think it's because we don't like the feeling of vulnerability. Really, because it's me owning up to the role that I played in hurting somebody that that matters to me, that I that I care about. And I don't like to own up to that. I'd rather kind of spread the responsibility rather than just say I blew it. I, I blew it. I said something insensitive. I did something very uh, cruel or hurtful, and I own that, and, and now I set my sights on making some changes. So we looked at repentance in light of genuine and superficial as well, because oftentimes we can just say, I'm sorry, and check the box, and the other person says, no worries. And we're off to the races again only for it to happen again and that's where the problem comes in and that is what superficial repentance looks like on the other hand owning the very nature of that we looked at that and talked a little bit about it as far as repentance is concerned with the idea that that it involves not only a changing of one's mind and we talked about the greek word there metanoia but it also means turning or returning to where I was before. And so there's a change in direction. And so to, to put it succinctly, repentance is changing one's mind and changing one's direction. Changing the direction is evidence of changing one's mind. Just because I changed my mind doesn't mean necessarily anything changes. I need to purpose to, to change a direction. I need to do things differently. And <clears throat> I mentioned at the very end two things. One, don't promise something you can't fulfill. I'll never do that again. Or don't say, will you forgive me? That's a demand question. That is not a question that gives the person the freedom to say, no, I'm not ready yet. And so we, we talked about both of those things. And now where I want to uh, focus on Is where all these two things come together now I had made mention of the fact that forgiveness and repentance are one-way streets They, they I don't need somebody to forgive me in order for me to repent and I don't need to repent because somebody's forgiven me they're not connected they are disconnected from one another we have turned these things into a contract So if I I repent, then you'll forgive, right? So it's kind of this this trade, what I called in, in the forgiveness episode, what I called quid pro quo, this for that. I will give you my repentance if you give me my forgiveness or your forgiveness. It can't work that way. It can't, and not to mention the fact that is not even biblical, because we are to follow God in our forgiveness, and that we were forgiven even while we were still enemies of His. We were forgiven. And so that forgiveness makes it possible for freedom to choose, even choose wrongly. That's not desired, obviously. But to choose wrongly, which means there is power behind choosing rightly, right? So, and that's the beauty of freedom, is that if somebody has the freedom to choose both things, not just one, but both things, then when they choose the thing that repairs our relationship, is which is what I want to talk about tonight, then it's a big deal because they have chosen to do that. So that being said, let me let me lay some groundwork here in talking about reconciliation because reconciliation takes two. As the old saying goes, it takes two to tango. It takes two to accomplish reconciliation, which means one at least one thing and that is is that the other person has no intent on changing their behavior or they don't believe that they have done anything to harm you then reconciliation is not going to occur and that there's a lot about that that feels intolerable to us and part of the intolerability if you want to put it that way is because of our contractual thinking God make it made it possible for us to reconcile us to him because of his choice to forgive us. He made it possible that does not guarantee the outcome as evidenced by a lot of people in our lives and examples that we can see is people don't choose to reconcile with God and but his forgiveness still stands. it's not changed in any way, shape or form so, Reconciliation takes two. And this is where usually what I say is that forgiveness is a unilateral process, a one-way street, and and repentance is a one-way street. And where do they meet? And they meet in the center at reconciliation. And that's how this works. If we can separate those two things apart, then reconciliation hangs on whether or not both people are willing to do that. If they are, praise God, good stuff will happen. It doesn't mean it will go back to normal, which we'll talk about in a second. So there are a couple different things I want to highlight in talking about reconciliation. First, what it isn't. And then secondly, what it is and what it it requires of us. So first, what it isn't. It is not, okay, and let's be let me be really, really clear. It is not the return to whatever normal was. Because normal, if normal was such a good thing, it would not have resulted in the kind of rupture that we're talking about. That requires forgiveness and or repentance, right? It it it, it wouldn't require that. So normal it usually in a lot of our relationships, is it's an uneasy truce. In a lot of, in some cases, not a lot of cases, but in some cases, and the way that I describe it is like the exam, not example. I don't know how to describe it. Well, I do, but whatever. You got the idea. <clears throat> so. It's a little bit like two porcupines on a cold winter's night, okay? And if they get too close, they poke one another, ouch. And if they get too far away, there's not enough body heat. So they find just the right distance to get just close enough to gain the body heat that they need to survive the cold winter's night and not poke one another. And in a lot of cases, that's what relationships are because we don't think through this process that I'm talking about. And, and reconciliation potentially, and that's a key term, potentially makes it possible for us to return to a new normal where boundaries are reset and If you wonder what I mean by that, it's going back to some of the things I talked about in uh, the episode before, I forget which one it is, with boundaries. But it's setting a new standard for relating to one another. I wouldn't call it a new normal because there really isn't such a thing as normal. It's too dynamic, I mean, whatever normal is, it's awful. Quite honestly, it's very awful, that word, because it creates a standard that doesn't exist. Humans are way too dynamic. Things change too much to say, well, this is normal. No, it's going to change, right? So. It's not returning to normal. It, that is not what reconciliation means. And it, it is not a matter of, okay, everything's good now, right? We're good. Well, maybe. I, reconciliation done, done well may take a period of time of unease and not good. And, and let's remember, good is not the ultimate good. <laughs> I mean, it isn't, it's, it, it's something that we that we say to say, now I can go on about my business and, and if I do it again, I do it again or whatever. So it's not good, we're not good now. Now, let me be clear, I understand what is meant, but I, I'm not much for interpreting people's words. I don't think that's good, actually, use that word. I, I think it's a matter of let's be clear and just saying something's good doesn't isn't terribly clear in this case. So we're good now, no. We're trying to reset the table here so that our our rules of engagement, how we in excuse me, how we interact with one another is is different. It's gonna be different. Now, could that become the norm or the normal at a later point in time? Yeah, hopefully. That would be a good thing, right? So it's not a matter of everything is good now, right? The second, the third thing is, is what it isn't is, okay, now I can just forget about it. I can go on about my business and I don't have to remember anything. No, I, I actually think that we need to remember what exactly happened so that we can make the changes that we need to And then lastly what it isn't is is going back to the way things were before with the boundaries and the vague expectations and the unclear things that we tend to say and and each person kind of saying well i'm not going to check on that because i don't want to press in too much and i don't want to make waves there's always that phrase right i i I don't want to just kind of uh, make things unsettled again and In some cases, the dynamism and the richness of our relationships live in in the dynamics of it, not in the stability of it. Now, I'm not saying stability is wrong. I'm not. But let's let's just be clear about that, is that it requires it's not going back to boundaries like we had it before. That shouldn't be it because that's the very thing that that landed us in this situation in the first place. So what it isn't is, oh, just forget about it. What it isn't isn't going back to normal. What it isn't is just everything is good now. Good has to be worked on. It has to be accomplished. It, It has work to do. So. You know, I, I've heard a lot of people oftentimes say, I just want peace. I just want peace in my relationship. And what we forget is that peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is hard won. It is worked on. And oftentimes it is unsettled. But that doesn't mean it's any less peace. So peace is, is one of these things that we hold out and I think we falsely assume that somehow it's, it's better. And I'm not, say, I'm not saying that a, a, a relationship that is constantly in conflict is a good thing. I'm not saying that at all. But understanding that we tend to hide behind vagaries and generalities and not really get specific, and when we ask for that, we find out how the person is actually thinking so what it isn't what it is and what it requires first and foremost it requires initiation it does we're told that when a brother has something against you go and seek and reconcile with him jesus said it himself so it requires some level of reconciliation that does not mean that that person will agree to it or will it be even remotely interested in it. It does not guarantee that outcome. And that's what's key for us to remember and not forget, is that in this entire process, there is always freedom. Always freedom. And there has to be, because love flourishes in freedom. So love is is um, forged in these relationships. The interesting thing about it is, is we spend so much time avoiding conflict that we never achieve this thing we call reconciliation. And conflict, as I say to my students all the time, is the gateway to intimacy. It is the way that we are known when we start to be willing to to recognize and talk about and be open about the things that we see differently from the other person. We get really frightened by saying that we're different because we're afraid what? It will create conflict. But we see conflict as destructive and perhaps that's all we've ever known. The families we come from, the relationships we've been in, and conflict has always been destructive and hurtful and And never turns out well, whatever that definition is. And so it takes a certain amount of initiation on somebody's part to move in this direction. It does not guarantee outcome. All right. Secondly, it requires humility. And so when I talk about the fact that that forgiveness and and repentance are both a part of this formula, that is true for both people okay that's true for both people and so is there forgiveness on both sides maybe maybe if if i'm purely the victim of somebody else's hateful and hurtful behavior then I, i i have forgiveness to work through but i don't know that i have any repentance the problem is is that We don't respond very quickly, and maybe we don't have an avenue to respond, and that needs to be said. But then we nurture a certain grudge and anger and resentment because the other person is not repenting. And so we withhold our forgiveness, waiting for that repentance to occur as a leverage point to get them to do that. So humility is required on both sides of the coin, really. And we have to know that in most of the interaction, kind of interpersonal conflicts we have, both people have played a part. They may not recognize that. And that's one of those places where a counselor comes in handy because they're an extra set of eyes. They can see without having a dog in the fight, if you will, to be able to point out the things that need to be looked at and explored and done done differently. Ultimately, the other thing it requires is a willingness to be clear and honest about what's going on. Inviting and in, in being clear about what I'm forgiving the other person. I don't know that it's required. It's about clarifying how we've been hurt, but it's not saying, "Oh, I forgive you." Because I I don't know what purpose that serves. I think our behavior will show that we've forgiven them, and I think it will show in this example that I want to take. So, we have to be clear we have to be willing to clarify how we've been hurt not to confront in order to change behavior and at any point in time over the years of talking to people and they want to confront the person that has hurt them to what end to extract a repentance and how free is that going to be so clarify not confront and always allow freedom. If the person says, thanks but no thanks, I'm not interested. I don't think I did anything wrong. You're being oversensitive. You're being dramatic. Just get over yourself and we can get it back to relationship as we knew it before. And I've I've seen plenty of that. But, but there's freedom for that, and, but, and all that does is makes it clear about perhaps what I need to do in terms of resetting the boundaries that I've had. It's not I, I'm trolling for certain things to happen because ultimately trolling is controlling, controlling. Interesting, interesting little thing, right? Because we use the word troll for certain things. Even in social media, people troll the other person, right? But control is actually exercising and limiting freedom in order to get a desired result. So the prime example, and and it's interesting that I I do a video this time around because the prime example is actually pictured in, in this in this uh, picture I have behind me. My wife was kind enough to give me a present, and that was to frame uh, one of Rembrandt's uh, pictures, or paintings, not pictures, paintings of what is returned was uh, referred to as the return of the prodigal. And I have this in my office here at home at the Northern Command Center, and I also have it at, the, at my office at school. You can call it the Western Command Center. Um, way bigger but it is a prime example of what it is I'm talking about about all three of these processes because when you look at the example that Jesus gave of the prodigal it is the culmination of three different parables all talking about lost things there's the, the the widow looking for the coins that she lost, and there's the shepherd that's looking for the sheep, sheep, sheep that he's lost, okay? So it culminates, it crescendos into an example that includes his audience that he's talking to. Now, if you're familiar, most people are, the story of the prodigal, there is three main players. There's the father, there's the the wandering son. Most of the time we refer to the the prodigal son, but I would say the wandering son, because when you come right down to it, fascinating writing on this would be it's a, a Tim, Timothy Keller's book entitled The Prodigal God, because it's the prodigal father. The prodigal doesn't mean wayward, prodigal means lavish and extravagant in in the spending. So we've got the father, we've got the wandering son, and then we've got the elder son. And let's set the context here, because the son, the, the younger son, why is it the younger always gets this reputation? But the younger son comes up to his father and says, basically, he says, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now as if you're dead and and his father complies. And at first blush, we look at that and say, why? You're, You're just enabling this. But see, it goes back to something I said earlier in terms of freedom. And so the father complies, liquidates his estate, and gives the inheritance to his son. And his son goes off, we're told, to a far country and wasting his money on wine, women, and song, for lack of a better way to put it. He wastes all of his riches. And we're told that finally he runs out and he says, "I, I don't have any money. How do I make some money? Well, I'll kind of Um, I'll sell myself to somebody else watching their pigs. Remember, in this Jewish culture, pigs are not a good thing to hang out with. And he's sitting there watching the pigs have all they want to eat, having, having basically a lunch with them and saying, Man, I could get into that kind of meal too because I'm so hungry. I don't really care what I'm eating. And we're told two things. Now, go back to some of what I talked about with repentance. There is a change in mind, and, and Scripture literally translates that into he came to his senses, and he makes the computation, and he realizes even the slaves are better off than him in his father's household. So he comes to his senses, and then he returns to Shuva, the Hebrew word teshuvah. So he goes home as he is on his trip home. How often have we done this? We rehearse the conversation we're going to have with the person that we have offended. And so he's rehearsing. And Father, I know I've sinned against you in heaven. And if you take me back, I'll be a a servant in your house. I don't have to be your son. Essentially, telling the Father what he should do and how he should do it, right? And when he comes home, as he is coming home, we're told that the father sees him from afar, from far off. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? The father is looking. The father is looking. He wouldn't he wouldn't be running to his son if he didn't look for his son. And the father goes running out to his son, lifting up his tunic and running to his son. Completely inappropriate in terms of social convention. Completely inappropriate. He did not care if he looked crazy and stupid and made himself look socially socially inappropriate. All he cared about was the love of his son. And I would add that the father, in order for him to even accomplish that, was because the father had forgiven his son already. See, in this parable we have forgiveness, we have repentance, and we have reconciliation. The father forgives, the son repents, and reconciliation is on the road. And so, the son rehearses his part. The father has already forgiven, as evidenced by his behavior, and he says three things to his son. Put a robe on him. Now, in this, in this picture, if you ever get an opportunity to look at it, you see two red, rich red robes. One the father is wearing, and the other is what the elder brother is wearing. And that's how Rembrandt captured it. It's not gospel truth or anything. But he says, put a robe on him. Put a, the finest robe on him. Who do you suppose has the finest robe? And that answer, three three guesses, two don't count, would be Dad's. He says, put the finest robe on him. If this, was, this picture was to be continued, you would see him taking his robe off and putting it on his bedraggled son. Secondly, he says, put a ring on his finger. Restore him to sonship. So repentance in Teshuvah returns to his original identity as his son. And he is officially changed his mind and then finally put sandals on his feet because he is worn out and he carries all the dirt that of his travels with him so the father has restored his son fully into relationship with him he's re-established him as his son he has given him his finest robe and he has covered all the sin all the dirt of his travels so The elder son is seething with resentment. If you look at this picture closely, the elder son has this look of condescension, and he is seething with resentment. And I would say, to put it succinctly, he has all of the resentment because he's been in, he has written a contract for his father that his father has not been a part of. And that contract is, if I obey and I do the things you tell me to do, the least you could do is give me a young goat for me and my friends to have a party." And that's that's the contract, right? And dad has not complied with that. Dad goes out to him and the elder brother says, that boy that you brought back and and goes on to rail about his younger brother. He's gone out of his way to do all of these things. And how often do we do this with God? We, We write a contract with him, or we kind of see this magic code, right? And I've got to get it just right, these ingredients just right, these things just right, these behaviors and activities just right, and then God will bless me. And God didn't sign the contract. And that all that does is create all sorts of resentment for the elder son. And so, the, the, the elder son, seething with resentment and, and storms off, we know nothing of what happens after that. Jesus left it wide open. Now, the one thing I will tell you is what is really remarkable about this is who was talking and who was listening. Who was talking, I think everybody knows, was Jesus, right? And the Pharisees were listening, and and the audience of people that were around him. And in that culture, the Pharisees would be picking apart not only the younger son, but also the older son, quite honestly, because a good older brother goes, gets his brother, and brings him back home. But this elder son didn't do that the juxtaposition, and Keller masterfully paints this picture, the juxtaposition is Jesus coming to a far-off country, otherwise known as Earth, and meeting with his younger brothers, Pharisees, and also the rabble that followed him, and offers to bring them back home. And with this story, I think the point can be made that he was Inviting them to come home with him. And of course, they would rather write a contract and be mad that God doesn't fulfill it. Quite honestly, I think it's a brilliant stroke by Timothy Keller that points to the fact that the parable is the reenactment of real life. And there's a group of people that know they're the prodigals, like the younger son, and there are a group of people that are prodigals that didn't even don't know it. They think that they are right up there with everybody else, right? And right up there with God, because they're doing everything that he's told them to do. And as long as they do that, then God will do right by them. So what is reconciliation? Reconciliation is the bringing together of repentance and forgiveness and a meeting on the road that adjusts and atones for the things that people have done and said and and things that have happened and resets the table for a different kind of relationship. That's what reconciliation does. It's not meant to go back to normal because normal was obviously not not a good thing, right? So reconciliation takes work and ironically, Just like repentance and forgiveness, it takes a decision, the initiative to to reconcile, but then there's a process, and sometimes it's a longer process that requires the, the process of reconciliation, requires the humility and the willingness to take ownership of that which we have parts that we have played. That's what reconciliation is. And so, the complete package inevitably includes forgiveness reconciliation or forgiveness repentance and reconciliation it is not forgiveness and reconciliation it is three things not two and that was my point at the very beginning so if there's anything about the things that I've referred to about forgiveness or re- repentance that you're unsure about, or you, you want to hear more, more detail, go back and take a listen to those episodes. Um, and and hopefully that will bring this whole picture together because it is pictured in that picture. The whole picture is is there of forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. So. That's it for tonight. Thanks for joining me. A few end of, of program kind of reminders. If you have questions or the things that I brought up, kind of um, you, you have an example or there's something that, that sticks in your craw, that's what we say in Indiana at least, and you want more clarification or thought or explanation. DM me on Instagram or use the the uh, Q&A box at, on the website at drmitch.com you're more than welcome to do that and I I will be I check that on a semi-regular basis so that if there's anything that comes up there that I I can talk about on the on the podcast I certainly will do that um, you can subscribe on the, on the website at drmitch.com and, and be notified if anything new is coming up. Of course, you can also follow us on any of three social media outlets. Instagram, we can be found at at the Psych Monologues, uh, Facebook at Ray.Mitch, and LinkedIn at drmitch. Um, subscribe, please subscribe if if the material and the content that you're hearing here is challenging to you and helpful to you, Please subscribe and then also uh, turn some other people on to it and uh, write a review. Do whatever uh, you can to, to help um, raise the profile of the psych monologues and ultimately SGI um, in order to accomplish what we're setting out to do there. So we can be found on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Amazon, Podbean. Uh, i Heart radio, and pretty much anywhere that you consume or listen to podcasts, you can find us there as well um, if If you want to partner with us, we would be I would be the most not the most. I would be most grateful and appreciative of your partnership with us to continue to grow the scholarship fund and the mission fund for SGI. The scholarship fund is for students to participate in the silent retreat that we put on every year. We put three on each year. We do one in the fall, one in the spring, and then we do an alum for CCU alums. Or other people I'm not opposed to doing that I would encourage anybody from other universities that have already graduated and they want to get, participate in a silent retreat like the way we do it um, because we do it a little bit differently than I think the typical silent retreat would be or the traditions of silent, silence and solitude but if you're interested and you want to partner with us we'd be ever so grateful your gifts and contributions are tax deductible Um, and for CCU and asylum retreats or or, our larger asylum retreats um, you you can uh, do that through uh, the the donation button at the bottom of the page on the front page you can find it donate and, and be able to give either on a monthly basis which is probably the most helpful for us or on a um, on a single time basis we have a retreat coming up in April and another one in May um, and it, uh, it it's about um, let me think this through here it's about 360 dollars per student uh, to pay for it. Um, enrolled students at CCU get a, get a subsidy from, from Colorado Christian University, but our alums don't, and they, they're they scrapping because they're going through grad school or they're just starting out their careers or whatever that might be. So any contribution would be most helpful to support uh, students or newly graduated students to participate in an unusual retreat, Silence and Solitude. If you'd rather make a physical check, you can certainly do that make it out to Stained Glass International or SGI uh, and send it to the address with the same same name as Stained Glass International to PO Box 160 East Lake, Colorado 80614. So if you want to send it to us, you can send it to Stained Glass International PO Box 160 East Lake, Colorado, 80614. So that's it for tonight. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to listen and um, uh, consider and prayerfully consider some of the things that we're talking about as far as relationships and your relationship with not only yourself, but also with God and others and what that looks like. And if there's changes that need to be made, perhaps there are plenty of things here, hopefully, that will be of encouragement and help you through to that end so again thanks for joining me and as always love you later bye